You know, to begin this year, we've started with this uh, little short series on, on we've entitled a new, new Year, New You. And, uh, you know, we've been talking about how this idea that, you know, we, what, are the, what are the things that we can do? You know, we often think of New Year's and we think of New Year's resolutions. Here's the resolution that I want to do that I can somehow grow or change in the coming year. Now, the problem is that for many of us, we've kind of given up making New Year's resolutions because we've done it in the past. And, uh, and, and, and how many of us have ever kept a New Year's resolution? And there aren't a whole lot, many of us, you know, most of us have given up because, you know, we know we usually forget about it in a week or two. And so why even try? In fact, I went to look something up and said, I wonder how often, you know, surveys do they show, like how often actually people remember. I found this chart. I don't necessarily think it's based on a scientific survey, but it probably is somewhat accurate. Uh, you know, how long do people keep their news resolutions? Here you have the little blue sliver. It's a week. Uh, you have the purple sliver, which is a month. And then you have the green, which is, I already forgot what they are. And, uh, you know, I think that's pretty accurate for most of us. And so there, we don't even do it. Now, then you say, okay, what about spiritual resolutions? Should we do that? Is even the idea of a New Year's resolution, a spiritual resolution, even biblical? You know, we even asked that question last week, and, and what we found is that while the Bible doesn't ever talk about New Year's or New Year's resolutions, it actually talks an awful lot about the idea that there should be times that we sit back and evaluate our lives, and we even set goals for how we want to grow in the future. And so it calls us to strive in this way. And so last week, we talked about the importance of of, um, of, of scripture reading, and, and what if we made this commitment to every day spend time in God's word and how that would change us and how powerful it is. And the Bible calls us to that type of thing. I think we saw last week, 2 Timothy chapter 2, where it says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. And here we want to be one who is approved to God, one who has no need to be ashamed. How is that? Well, we, we learn to be people who handle the word of truth, who grow in our ability to handle that word. Now, now here's the question, though. You, you say, on the one hand, we talk about New Year's resolutions, and we don't even bother to make them because we always break them. And, and now we talk about spiritual resolutions. Why are they different? Why should we even talk about spiritual resolutions? Because... Why should I expect that I have any more ability to keep a spiritual resolution than I do any other New Year's resolution that I always forget about? And when I think there's at least one significant difference, and, and that is when you think about New Year's resolutions, generally what we're doing is we're saying, I am making this commitment by my own effort, by my own self-will self to do something, to change something, to, to start a new habit. But if you look at what the Bible teaches about spiritual disciplines, by their very nature, they're not things that we do by our own ability and strength. By their nature, they're actually expressions of our weakness and our dependency. You see, the whole idea is, do I read the Bible? Well, yeah, if I do, if I read the Bible, it's not because I am disciplined. It's because I'm aware that I need it because I'm dependent, because, because I have this hunger, I have this need that I realize that if I don't spend time in God's word, I'm going to be in a mess. Look what it even says about this idea in, in Philippians. Uh, it says, therefore, my beloved, as you always obeyed, now, now, so now, not only in my presence, but more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, he's not saying that we're called to work to accomplish our salvation, no, that's the gift of God. What it's saying is, okay, what God has given you, what God has worked into your life, now you work to get it out. 
meaning you work to learn how to express it in the way that you live your daily life. So he calls us to work it out, and clearly it's calling us to do something, right? Now, okay, and in the midst of that, what is he calling us to do? Next verse, look what it says. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work his good pleasure. Now, you do something, but when you seek to do it, it's God who gives you the ability to do it. It's God who will give you both the will, the desire to do it, and the ability to work it out. So we're called to do something, but we don't do it by our strength and our ability. We do it by our weakness and dependency. And so that's the idea. They said, is that this is what makes a difference. It's not, I need to try harder. I need more self-discipline. No, I actually need to understand that I am totally dependent on these things. And the more that I am dependent, if I can't survive without God's word, if I can't survive without time with God in prayer, that's what drives me. Let me even try to illustrate it in practical ways. You know, I, I remember some years ago having friends who had kids that had health problems and needed to give their kids shots every day. And, and I remember even talking to saying, I can't imagine doing that. I, can't, I, I couldn't imagine knowing how to do that, let alone having the discipline to do that. And I think about my kids and my kids, a couple, some of them, and one of our sons especially, man, he hated shots. And I remember when he was young, we'd take him to get shots, and it was a stressful event. There was weeping and gnashing of teeth, and, and uh, I mean, he just hated it. And then something happened. When he was nine, that particular son, John, was diagnosed as a type 1 diabetic. And we didn't see it coming. We didn't see any of the warning signs so that when it finally came, I mean, he, was, he was in critical care. Literally, I remember carrying him in the hospital semi, in a semi-comatose state, and the doctor saying, well, we hope that we can get him through the night. And, and, and then if we do, then he's a type 1 diabetic, and what that means is you're going to be taking his blood multiple times, and you're going to give him at least four shots a day, and, and you need to do this for him to live. And, and you know what? Suddenly what I thought was impossible suddenly became not a hard habit to keep. It became natural. And not only that, we had our son who hated to give shots. We realized we weren't going to be able to be with him 24 hours a day. We had to teach him to give himself shots. And so suddenly we have this nine-year-old who's giving himself shots. And it wasn't that hard to teach him. Because when it became necessary, it became natural. Or I can even think of another example, even just more recent. Um, I had read in the past that apple cider vinegar is supposed to be really good for you and you're supposed to drink some, and I tried it, and I had made resolutions, and I've never kept it, I've never done it, and I, it's terrible. And um, Well, I went to the doctor a couple months ago, and they told me that I have a health problem that's been developing, and, and I need minor surgery. And uh, Now, I don't like minor surgery. My whole thing is I generally believe I would rather keep all the parts I came with and so if I can avoid it, I, I would like to. But I did some research and I found this particular problem that I have, if I drink apple cider vinegar and, vit and lemon juice daily, it's supposed to clear out the particular problem I have. And so I can do that and avoid surgery. And you know what? I've started drinking apple cider and vinegar every day. Apple cider vinegar and lemon juice. I mean, every morning I get up and it is, it's horrendous. You know, <laughs> man, it's terrible. And, and I, I will tell you, it wakes you up. It wakes you up in a really bad mood, but it wakes you up. I mean, it just is, when I mean, you just drink, you know, and, and, and it's like what I was never able to do through my self-will because it was good for me, suddenly if I believe it's necessary, it's not that hard of a, you know, it's an unpleasant thing to do, but it's not that hard to do because I realize it's necessary. Now, I'm not more disciplined. It's the sense of necessity that's driving my actions. 
And that's what the Bible teaches about spiritual disciplines. That's why it's not about just try harder, do more. No, it's about being recognizing like all of grace. Everything is me coming to God and saying, God, I can't do this. I need your grace. I need you to give me what I don't have. God, I need your grace, so I need to go to your word because I can't survive without it. I need to come to you in prayer because I can't survive without it, even with prayer. Hey, when my son was in the hospital and they're saying, we're not sure he's going to make it through the night, it wasn't hard to pray that day. I know I needed it. I struggle and pray when I think I don't need it. And if I live in awareness that I need those things, you see, that's what drives me. That's what spiritual disciplines are. Okay, so last week we talked about the importance of the God's Word, reading God's Word. We need to do that. Well, this week we're going to look at another one, and, and we're going to start by going through kind of what seems like a rabbit trail, but stick with me. Um, those of you that were raised in a church, you remember what stories you liked when you were kids? Those of you who have kids, what stories do your kids like? What do we tell at VBS? Especially Old Testament. You know, the Old Testament stories that I think we often tell is we tend to focus on these stories that talk about God's miraculous provision for his people, often through really unusual means. So you think about it. I, I, I could give you all kinds of examples. Exodus chapter 17, you have the story of the people of Israel that go to fight the Amalekites. And, and here you have Moses suddenly realizes if he raises up his hands, the people win. If he lowers his hands, they start losing. The problem is it's a long battle. His arms get tired. He can't hold up his hands. So Aaron and Hur hold up his hands. And, and through this strange thing of holding up his hands out of faithfulness to God, God delivered victory. Or, or Joshua 6. And you have the story of Joshua and the people of Israel that go to fight this great walled city of Jericho. And God says, okay, here's how I want you to defeat them. Go march around the city for seven days, and then at the end, scream, and the walls will fall down. And it's like, okay, that's crazy. God did. They did it, and God delivered them. Or Judges 7 and the story of Gideon. You have Gideon, who is this army of 32,000 men, but he's facing an army of, you know, many times greater than him. It's overwhelming. They don't stand a chance. So God says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to take your 32,000 men, whittle it down to 300, and then don't give any of them swords. Just give them, you know, trumpets, pitchers, and a, and a, and a torch, and then go attack the Gideons, and I'll win. And it's like, that doesn't make any sense, but God does the miracle. Or David and Goliath, 1 Samuel 17, you have, you know, this great giant, everyone is in shaking in fear of him, and, and God brings up this little kid, He's still growing, not fully mature, and suddenly he says, okay, I'll go fight him with just a slingshot, and God delivers him. God does the miracle. And there's numerous stories like this, and they're all great stories that tell of God's great power and how God provided for his people in the past. But here's what I want to say, or ask. How do we apply those stories to our lives today? They're great stories to tell our kids, but what do they mean for us? How do we live those things? You know, it's wonderful, again, to hear about what he's done in the past. And there is a practical application. You know, even last Sunday, we talked about, again, the importance of reading the Bible. We mentioned that we're going to be having, again, starting two weeks from tonight, a, a kind of Sunday night class where it help you to figure out what are some principles that help us understand how to understand the Bible. And we're going to spend in the first two weeks, I think the best part of it is, you know, these basic rules for interpreting the Bible and illustrating how to play them out. Well, one of the rules for interpreting the Bible, basic rule is this. When, a, when, when you look at any passage of the Bible, one of the main questions to ask with every passage is always the same, and that's the question, so what? Meaning this, well, what does it mean? You see, the whole idea is that God's word is incredibly relevant and practical. And therefore, part of understanding its meaning will always mean that we also then understand how to apply it to our lives. 
And if we don't understand the application, if we don't understand, well, so what? What does it mean to me? How do I live it out? Then you really don't understand its meaning. It's incredibly practical. That's one of the things that is always there. So now we take this idea, we apply it to all these stories, these great stories of God and miracle in the past, and we say, okay, so what? What is the practical application of these stories? Because it's not just teaching about what God did in the past. It's always teaching us what he wants to teach us today. And God isn't calling us to go march around a bunch of walls and yell and scream until they fall down. He isn't calling us to attack an army with, you know, just with a trumpet and a a pitcher and a, a torch. So what is he calling us to? Well, there's some themes here that are consistent in all of them. You know, one is that God will will allow his people to face overwhelming obstacles, things that are far greater than our ability to handle. It happened then, it still happens now. And God wants us to have faith and to be able to trust in him to provide for us. But yet in that, in each story, God called his people to demonstrate their faith by doing something that logically made absolutely no sense. He didn't call them just to sit back passively and say, I'm gonna provide, you just sit and watch. No, he said, I'm going to provide. Now, you show your faith in my provision by doing this thing that seemed totally unrelated to the threat, unrelated to the need, because that was their way of showing faith in God's promise. And God did that. So what happened? God delivered the people of Israel because Moses held up his hand during the battle. It made no sense, but God did it. They they believed. You know, God delivered the people because Gideon had the faith to cut his army from 32,000 to 300 and attack without a sword in the whole group. God gave the people a great victory because they believed his promise and they walked around the, the walls of Jericho for seven days. In each case, it's vital for us to see that God had his people do something. Something that seemed unrelated to the victory, but While God accomplished the victory, they had to do their part, what he called them to, for that victory to have happened. Now, I think there's an incredibly practical idea here. There's, when you look at this, it's teaching us something, but it's not what we would at first see. It's calling us in a practical way. See, I think in all of these stories, we're gonna see something, but but rather than look at all of them, I'm gonna focus the rest of our time on one, and specifically Joshua chapter six and, and the destruction of the walls of Jericho. And here as we look at this, let me take a moment and first of all kind of set the context because, you know, if we don't remember the story or don't know it, you hear it's about Joshua. This guy had just been made now the, the new leader of Israel. Moses had been the leader for, you know, for 40 years. He's passed away uh, 40 years earlier. In fact, early in, in, the, in Moses' leadership, Moses had led the people out of Egypt to the very border of the promised land. And he sent some scouts into the promised land before they you know, were to go to take the land that God had promised. And the scouts came back, and, and, and here was the report. It reported as according to Deuteronomy 1. The people of the land are taller and more powerful than we are, and their towns are large with walls rising high into the sky. And because of the report, the, the people of Israel were terrified. And because they were terrified, they're saying, they're way bigger than we are. We can't win this. And even though God had promised them victory, they said, well, we're afraid. We're too fearful. We're not going to do it. And as a result, God said, okay, if you're not going to do it, then you're going to go wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And after 40 years, he brings them back. Now Moses has passed away. Joshua is the new leader. And as they come back to that border of the promised land again, now again, Joshua 2 tells us that he sends some scouts in. And they, they, you know, they come back and they go to Jericho. That's the first big city in the promised land. 
And, and it was the largest city. It was, as they came back, it was exactly, really kind of the same report. Yeah, they're taller and bigger than people than we are. They've got these great towns. They've got these walls that rise high, high into the sky. And yet now God calls them to an impossible task. Now he calls them, now one of the things when, he's, when we kind of miss is that the people of Israel, when they came to Jericho and they saw these great walls. They had never seen a walled city before. They came from, from Egypt, and Egypt was a great culture, but they didn't have any walled cities. They've never seen this before. And, and, and they say, come here. This is by the standards of that day, and this is huge. This is a huge city with incredible walls. They've actually, archaeologists have found the site of the city of Jericho, and they've, um, they've learned a lot about it from what they've been able to excavate. And, and what they found is that the walls of Jericho were made completely from stone. Uh, we can't know for sure, but archaeologists estimate that they were probably about 35 feet high. That's, that's, that's huge. And not only that, they were built on a slope. And so because they were built on a slope, it would have it seemed basically a 10-foot slope. It would have seemed as they, they were 45 feet high as the people came and marched around them. And not only that, not only they're tall, they're made of they're stone, they're wide. We're told uh, that the spies went in Joshua 2 and, and Rahab the prostitute's house was built into the wall. So this is probably at least 15 feet wide. These are huge. They're, you know, they're, you, can't, you can't defeat these things. And you look at this and you say, okay, the people of Israel are looking saying, we can't attack this. We don't know how to do this. And, and the defending, if we try, the defending armies are shooting arrows. They're throwing spears. And that's why when they looked at this, the first group looked at it and said, we can't do this. You know, we can't, the people are big, the towns are huge, the walls are rising high into the sky, specifically Jericho. Now, we can look at this and we can say, that's really interesting. Um, it's interesting to look at what happened then. And, but what's the application? Again, how many of you are called, how many of you have attacked a walled city recently? You know, has God called you to do that? No, we don't face that anymore. But yet, What's the issue? Have you ever felt like you're facing something that God's calling you to do something and there's an impossible obstacle, there's something that you can't imagine overcoming? I mean, is this relevant? Is God, does God still call us to do this? Let's make it personal. You might have some there, I know that God's calling me to build a marriage and I want to have a great marriage, but you don't know my spouse. They, they're putting up walls and it seems like the walls of Jericho are minor compared to, to what I'm facing. Or, I, I know God wants me to heal relationships, but, you know, this person wronged me, and, and, and forgiving, man, that's a wall. I can never forgive. I can't get over that. How could I forgive that person? Or, or I know that God wants me to, to live a biblical lifestyle, but, man, I've got this one temptation, this one addiction, and I keep falling into it, and I just can't grow no victory. Man, it's bigger than I can possibly face. Or there may be some here that, you know, you're facing crises in life. There are some that are not with us here in person today. You're at home because you're battling cancer, you're battling disease, you know, and it's, man, you're just, just hanging on. There are people that, you know, that even this week that we talked to that have just had crises. They've lost loved ones, they've lost children, they've lost, you know, crises, and it's just overwhelming, and it's like, how do I get beyond this? I just can't get past what I'm facing right now. Or even we get beyond the personal and we say to the church, but God wants us to reach our culture and God wants us to make a difference. Hey, but you ever see what's out there in the culture? I mean, there's some pretty well-established enemies that are really opposed to God's agenda. And how are we as a church really supposed to make any substantive change? Man, there's, there's walls that are bigger than the sky. I don't know what to do. 
They seem impossible. Okay, let's go back to Joshua 6. They, they gave him an impossible odd, or, or task, and then God said, okay, but here's what I want to do. I'm going to do it, and, and I'm going to give you a strategy, and it's totally illogical. It makes no sense. Okay, if you have your Bibles open, here's where we're going to turn to Joshua. Uh, look at with, with Joshua 6, and, and we read that at, on, in verse 1 that um, God sends an angel. He sends an angel to Joshua, and this angel is going to now tell Joshua the word of God to him, what the promises are, what the strategy is. Pick it up in verse 2. And the Lord, this is through the angel, said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and its mighty men of valor. Now, I love the way it starts. First of all, God's saying, I have delivered Jericho in your hands. Number one, it's not you're going to win the battle. It's I'm going to win the battle. It's my battle. I'm going to fight it. I'm going to win it. And he speaks in the past tense, not I will, I have. In a sense, I have already delivered. It's, it's something that in God's eyes, it's already a done deal. Yet in spite of this, even though God says it's my battle, I'm winning the battle, now here's what you have to do. It's my battle, but you've got a role in it. And so he then gives the strategy of, of his role. Look at verse 3. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus you shall do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. And the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets and when they make a long blast with the ram's horns, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall flat, and the people shall go up and everyone straight before him. Now, that's wonderful. And now we read that story, and especially if we're familiar with it, we're, man, man, that was an awesome. And Okay, I want you to back up, and I want you to think about this. Sometimes we need to read the Bible experientially. Put yourself into the story and think about it, all right? Think about you have Joshua here from the angel, and then he goes to the people, and he said, you know, just picture this scene. The people are gathered. They're all nervous. They're all worried about what's going to happen. And Joshua comes and says, the, God came to me. God sent an angel, and he gave, me, he gave me the report, and I want to tell you what he said. God said that we're going to win the victory. We're going to be victorious. And people are cheering, yeah, all right. And then he says, all right, and he calms people down. And not only that, but God has given me his plan. He's told me what he wants us to do to be able to go and claim the victory. And again, the people are cheering and shouting. Man, they're excited. This is wonderful. And he calms them down. He says, okay, here's the plan. Tomorrow morning, we're going to get all the armed men together, and we're going to march to Jericho, and then we're going to go walk around the city, and we're going to come back. And the next day, we're going to go do the same thing. We're going to walk around the city, and we're going to do that for six days. And on the seventh day, we're going to get up really early, and we're going to go walk around the city seven times, and then we're all going to shout, and the walls are going to fall down, and we're going to go be victorious. And I could hear, like, um, there were crickets, you know. I, I could just see it. And somebody has a nervous laugh and says, yeah, that's really funny, Joshua. What did God really say, you know? You know, no, no, that's what God said. Um, this has got to be some kind of joke, right? You know, because we all know that walking around a city doesn't knock down any walls. That's crazy. That's stupid. That's... Well, this is what God said. Well, why would God tell us to do something like that? And then think about that. They go the first day, and what happens? I've got to tell you, in the past, I had often read this, and I had thought, okay, well, they just kind of walked around, and they let him walk around, and I don't think they did. I mean, here you have Jericho, this huge city, walled city. They know about the Israelites coming. They fear them. And so suddenly, this, the army starts, gets there and walks around, I think they noticed and maybe responded. I know exactly what it was like. Uh, we're not sure. I, 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 
I think one of the great producers of film. I, done, I think I've done it well. Um, Veggie Tales. I mean, they, 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 do, they tell stories incredibly well. If you have kids, can't speak more highly, highly enough of Veggie Tales. And, uh, and so they kind of have this picture. What's the first day like? Now, in VeggieTales, it's a kid thing that includes things like slushies. I don't think there were slushies at the time. But, you know, you kind of get the picture. Just maybe what was it like when they showed up that first day? Well, God's way still sounded kind of funny, but the Israelites agreed to give it a try. And the next morning, there they were, marching around Jericho. It wasn't long before the people of Jericho noticed the Israelites. What are you doing? We're going to knock your wall down. By walking around in circles? Yes. It's not because we're crazy or anything. Our God told us to do it this way. Oh, that's a great idea. You go ahead and keep walking. <laughs> All right, boys, let them have it. Again, I don't think they're necessarily slushies. But again, think about here you have the people of Israel. They, they show up. Jericho's expecting them. There's an army, several, you know, hundreds of thousands strong. People of Jericho didn't just sit there and watch and say, oh, I wonder what they're doing. I mean, there, I'm sure there was interaction. I'm sure there was, they did everything they could to discourage them. You know, I'm sure they were constantly throwing out insults. And remember, these walls were set so that you could fire arrows, you could throw spears, and they were doing that. I don't know if they were close enough. I don't know if people got hit or not, or if they just stayed further away and how far they walked around the wall. But I know that there, it was discouraging. And, and, and the, they get around and, and they get back to the camp and the people are like, why are we doing this? What in the world are we doing? You know, we're marching around the city. Did anybody see the walls crumble at all? You know, and, what in the world are we doing? We're walking in circles. Walking in circles don't, doesn't do anything. But why, what was happening? God says, no, I want you to trust and believe in me. You know why it was hard? I think part of the, what was hard for people, it was, number one, is they're sitting there saying, you know, could God really do this? And if, could, if God did it, <laughs> could he do it without our might? You know, we need our swords. We need to do something. And, and, and God's command didn't make any sense. There's no logical connection between walking around the wall and, and defeating the city. They wanted to be involved. If they're going to be involved, they wanted to be involved in the battle so that they could say they did something. They somehow contributed to it. However, God, I think, was trying to teach them some important points some practical points that, that he's trying to like still teach us. You know, number one, he's saying, no, the battle is God's. That's what the angel said. I will come and deliver. I will come and accomplish this. And, and not only that, but the battle is God's. He called them to do something. But it was something that made no sense. Why? Because he's testing whether they really believe the promises. You see, if God said, hey, the promise is mine, you just sit back and watch, they don't have to have any faith. They just sit back and hope and hope it works out. But if he comes back and says, I want you to do something logical, 
then it's, okay, well, we're going to win the battle, and we hope that God helps us, but we still won the battle. So instead, God says, I want you to do something totally illogical, seemingly disconnected from anything about this wall, and I want you to go do that, because if you do that, then the battle's going to be won, and I get all the credit. And it was crazy, it was illogical, but the people obeyed, and they believed, and so they came, and the six days, and the seventh day, they get up, and they march around seven times, and then, you know, they blow the trumpets, and they all shout, and look at what it says in verse 20. And then the people heard the sound of the ram's horns, and they shouted as loud as they could, and suddenly, the walls of Jericho collapsed, and the Israelites charged straight into the town and captured it. You see, God was trying to teach them something, and and what he's trying to teach them is, I think, what he's trying to teach us as well. When we look at that, you say, okay, there's certain things. Remember, God will allow us to face problems that are bigger than we are. He will allow us to face things that are, overwhelm our capacity. And, and what he's trying to show us is those things those, that are bigger than we are, which are the greatest battles that we would face, the greatest and most important battles that we face will be won by God's power, not by ours. It's not even by God's help. It's not our ability. It's, it's, it's our weakness and our dependence and God's intervention. You see, when we realize that, that helps us to start to make sense the idea that God sometimes calls us to do things that make no sense. You know, we may think, I've got a better way, and why? Because I want to do something that seems to be making a difference, and, and God says, no, I want you to do something that, that just shows that you're depending on me, that, that's going to show that when the miracle happens, it's me. Why? Because God's illogical commands are about testing our faith, it's not about testing our ability. It's not God saying, I want you to see if you can go take this battle and I'll help you. God's saying, no, I want you to believe in me. And that means doing something that doesn't seem to make a difference. Again, what is the whole point? If God, if God just did it and we didn't do anything, then we wouldn't ever have to stretch our faith. We'd just sit back and hope. If God called us to do something that made sense, then we would take the credit. We thought that we would do it. Well, maybe God helped us, but it was still us. Okay, so... What does this look like today? How does God call us to walk around the wall? If this is practical, we know the walls. How does God call us to fight? What is he calling us to do? Again, remember, God called them to do something that seemed to make no sense because he's teaching them something. Okay, now what are our battles? What are the nature of our battles? You know, what's interesting is that we read the Old Testament stories and we're, oh, that was great. But you read the New Testament and it speaks in terms of battles. But now it's describing what the battles are. They're spiritual in nature. Ephesians chapter 6. Um, I'm sorry, I, I, I had my wrong, wrong slide there. I'm sorry, this was the, the next point. How God calls us to walk around the walls. Look what it says. Uh, we, you know, we, Ephesians 6, we face a powerful army. We face a battle. Look what it says. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. In fact, you know, what's really interesting is you go to Matthew. In Matthew 16, Jesus talks about spiritual battles, and he uses explicitly the image of walled cities, of of taking on walls. Look what he says, Matthew 16. On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Okay, we're called to fight a battle. We're called to storm the gates of hell. We're We're called to storm the gates. We're called to do it. It's a spiritual battle. But how does he call us to do it? He calls us to do something that is every bit as illogical and seemingly disconnected from a human perspective as it was walking around the wall to knock down the walls. What does God call us to do? He calls us to pray. 
His logical strategy for us is prayer. Think about this. How many times have you ever prayed and you just, man, I go and I pray and I just feel like I'm talking to the air and I walk out and nothing seems to happen? You ever feel that? Welcome, yeah, yeah, we all have. Do you think that maybe they walked around the walls and they're like, we're just walking around the walls. I don't see, any, I don't see anything happen to the walls. This makes no sense. It's making no difference. And in the same way, you know, they walked around day after day. It made no difference. And, and from a non-Christian perspective, thinking that prayer is going to change something is just as crazy and stupid as thinking walking around the wall would knock down the walls. And it's hard for us to do. You'd think it would be easy. The fact is, it's one of the hardest things that we will ever be called to do. Why? In part because it seems to make no difference and we want to do something and it doesn't seem to be doing anything. We just seem to be talking into the air. Oswald Chambers says, you know, prayer does not equip us for the greater work. It is the greater work. It's, it's this logical thing that God calls us to do because it's the way that we demonstrate our faith and we kind of prepare for God to do the thing that only God can do. Look at the promises. There's so many of these, but one in, 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 in uh, Jesus says in John 14, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. You know, there's a promise that we're going to do works of Jesus, the greater works. Why? Because he's going to the Father and we come to him in prayer. He continues, whatever you ask in my name, I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. I mean, I read that and it's like, man, that's, that's promises I have a hard time believing. Is that, it's like saying that you're going to knock down walls. You're going to conquer a city. And I could go to countless passages like this what is it saying? We need to remember that what we are called to fight the battles, the most difficult, the most difficult challenges that we face are going to be spiritual battles and they're won by God's power. They're things that, 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 that are, you know, God is going to do. Yet in spite of the fact that God promises the victory, in spite of the fact that God delivers the victory, the fact is he still calls us to do something. Because if he didn't call us to do anything, then we wouldn't ever have to stretch our faith. We would just sit back and hope. And if he called us to do something logical, you see, then, it, then we would take the credit. We would say, oh, yeah, God helped me a little bit, but look what I did. So what does he do? He calls us to do something completely illogical, completely unrelated. Prayer is how we demonstrate our faith. That is what we called to do. And, and, we, and just like the Israelites, you know, they couldn't know the success without prayer. And sometimes we pray and it seems to do nothing. Well, they had to walk around seven days. Sometimes God doesn't tell us this is how long. But we need to persevere because that's how God works because he calls us to demonstrate our faith. And that, how do we do that practically? One of the things, you know, as a church, we say, okay, how do we grow in prayer? And we realize one of the things that we need to do, we need, as we talked about last week, you know, that uh, in Hebrews 10, you know, that, that we're called to spur each other on towards love and good deeds. Prayer is some, the same way. We, we often do it alone. But I think it's something that the more I understand, there's something that we should do with others periodically. Um, if the Israelites said, hey, each of you go and on your own, walk around the wall, I don't think it would have happened. They all went there together, and that's part of what, what allowed it to happen. That's one of the reasons that we do an emphasis on, on prayer. We've, we've done it now for 10 years, and, we're, you know, and usually it's the last week of January. Because of COVID, we've moved it back to the last week of February, but we want to talk about it. We're going to have a week of prayer. We're going to start talking about it increasingly in the next couple of weeks. We have this room that's over here as our prayer room. We're getting it all reset. We're you know, cleaning it up. We encourage you to come in whenever you're available. This prayer room is open all the time. 
We're going to be, as a, as a week of prayer goes, we're going to be sharing and say, give us your prayer requests. Give us requests that you can know. And that, wall, that, that room is just filled with prayer requests. And then in that week of prayer specifically, we want to encourage you, sign up. Many of you say, I don't know how to sign, pray for an hour. Sign up for an hour. There's all kinds of things that will help you do it. Every year I hear people say, I never thought I could do it. Pray for an hour. Man, that, it went far more quickly than I can imagine. We're going to have sign-ups, and we challenge you to sign up for an hour, at least an hour. Come in and pray for an hour. Just let God stretch you. And, and I hope and encourage, we're going to be talking about this in coming weeks, that we encourage you to use this room more and more. And we're going to be having a big prayer meeting that week and trying to pull everybody together. We need to be praying together. We need to learn how to do this. And I hope and pray that it's not just this week, but the week helps us grow as a church. We want to be praying with and for you. I, I mean, I encourage you. There's, every week there's, uh, there's something in, in, the, in the seat in front of these prayer requests. Fill these out. Let us know. You can fill them out online. Share with us. We want to be praying with you. We want to be praying for you. We want to be, you know, as you're aware of people, hey, grab people after, hey, what's going on? How can I pray for you? It was neat to just do some of that after, you know, yesterday I saw some people, and today after the service, that's precious when we get to pray with each other, encourage each other. But even in that, I want to challenge you as well. A lot of times the prayer request that we have, it's like, oh, I've got this health concern, I've got this worry this, this week. Okay, what are, the, what are the walls? What are the Jerichos? What are the things... I think one of the things is that we don't pray for big enough stuff. There's, there's things in our life, the miracles, the people that we want to be saved, the lives that we want to be changed, the marriages that we want to be saved, the you know, people that we want to be praying for, freed from addictions, the you know, healing of, of relationships, healing of body. What are the big things we're praying for? You know, are we praying, are we... If we're just praying for things, God, I need a little bit of help. I think I can, I think I can take this one on if you just help me a little bit. Or do we realize that God's calling us to look out and say, man, these are giant walls I can never do. I feel God calling me to go here. I can never take that on. But God, help me to believe enough to start to even ask, to ask to pray bigger, to ask to, to, to pray bigger, to ask for the big things. You know Why? Because when I read these stories and I hear about how God worked in miraculous ways, when God knocked down walls, that's not only what God did because he was powerful, that's who God is and what he does because he is powerful. And I think that he just wants to work in us and through us in just that way and more so. I think that God wants to do those kind of miracles in our life, in our community. I I, I long to see those things. But as it says in James, we have not because we ask not. And I'm, I, I admit, I'm, you know, I, I'm not asking enough. I'm, my faith is too small. I'm not praying for the things, the miraculous. And, and I ask you to be in this year, new, in a new year, new year, one of the things is to say, God, help us to pray. Help us to look. And, and even as I pray, I want to not only just be praying for the little things. I want to pray for the big things. I want to pray for the miracles. I want to see, see part of lives being changed. You know, it's wonderful. Every year in the week of prayer, we see someone come to faith in Christ. Every year in 10 years, every year it's happened. And I hope that this year it's multiple people. I hope that we have stories and wonderful celebrations. What are the things that we're praying for? Are we encouraging each other? Even as you pray, I want to encourage you, and it might be something where you say, man, I'm committed to do, well, tell somebody else. Tell somebody, hey, how about if we check each other and pray for each other? Hey, let's meet together. Let's pray together every once in a while. I know some incredible relationships that have been formed because somebody said, hey, can we pray together, you know, on a, on a regular basis? And you just start getting together and you start sharing life and you start praying together. And God does amazing things, not only through the prayer, 
but he does amazing things in those relationships. Can we grow in that together? I want this to be a new year and a new you and a new church, and, a, and not because of me and not because of our strategy, not because of anything that we have to offer other than, than our weakness and our dependency. And in our weakness and our dependency as we grow upon God to do work in miraculous ways, I long for God to work the miracles that everybody sits back and says, I know that's not them. I know that's not him. I know and that God showed up. And God's doing the miracles because it's not only about the miracles and the stories that we read about that he's done in the past. It's about the stories that we get to participate that God is still working in the present, in our lives, in our community. And I look forward to seeing with you what that looks like as we grow forward in, God, in dependence on God's grace.